This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, this is going to be absolutely unbelievable. We have an amazing guest with us. He's a political philosopher who's a resident scholar at the Herzl Institute member of the law faculty at Kiryat Ono Academic Center. And actually, not only does he have absolutely impeccable academic bona fides, he also has an incredibly distinguished political and public policy career He under his belt. He served as chief of staff of Israel's Ministry of Finance, chairman of the Israel Ports Authority, and so much more. And most importantly, for our purposes, he's the author of a fantastic book published by Cambridge University Press titled John Locke's Political Philosophy in the Hebrew Bible. He's the legend himself. Yechiel Leiter is here. And we're going to talk about the Bible, political philosophy, political history, so much more. But first, let's just set this up. Okay. So as we're reading through the book of Exodus, we're now up to the end of Exodus chapter 27, where the focus shifts from Moses onto Aaron and the priests. And while I think the cultural and political influence and implications of the book of Exodus until this point of the book, all the stories are obvious to most people, right? Liberation from Egyptian slavery, the Ten Commandments, or even the splitting of the Red Sea, right? A depiction of which Benjamin Franklin proposed as the official seal of the nascent United States of America. The influence of the book of Exodus to this point and its salience for the American project or the Western project are obvious. But once the action shifts to priests and priestly rituals, that's the point at which most folks interested in political philosophy these days would probably assume you can just stop reading. I mean, what place could priestly concerns possibly have for a liberal republic like ours? Priests are for theocracies, not democracies, right? But here's the thing. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, as Harvard's Eric Nelson, friend of the pod and former guest on here, has explained, if you want to understand the political philosophical basis for the rise of religious toleration in the West, for example, and eventually in the United States in particular, you'll quickly find out that the myth of religious toleration arising through the attenuation of religious fervor is just that, a myth. In fact, the greatest philosophical architects of religious toleration in the West, from Hugo Grotius to Thomas Hobbes to John Selden and John Harrington, all kind of household names in political philosophy, based their arguments precisely on the notion that good and virtuous political orders should model themselves after the Bible's own prescribed political order, which they called the Hebrew Republic. And the Hebrew Republic was, to use a phrase these thinkers all borrowed explicitly from the great first century Jewish historian Josephus, a theocracy. That is, in the Hebrew Republic, there was no differentiation between civil and religious law. So Moses, for example, was ancient Israel's chief civil magistrate, as they put it, and its leader in religious matters. Now, that being the case, reason these, you know, major 17th century thinkers, the best, most godly form of government would be a theocracy. And since in a theocracy, all religious law is governed by the civil magistrate, then we can assume that all religious laws in a theocracy serve some explicit civil civic purpose, namely keeping the peace or ensuring that political order is founded on reason. And if this was the sole goal of religious law, then a proper theocracy, a good theocracy, would have no reason to legislate what a person should or shouldn't believe since inner thoughts and feelings don't threaten civic peace, you know, contrary to those moderns who are convinced that speech is violence or whatever. And besides, inner thoughts are known only to God anyway, so just leave them alone. And it was through these theories, through a close reading of biblical thought, through the lens of political philosophy and taking the theocratic elements of the Hebrew Republic seriously, that Western religious toleration as we know it was born. Now, I raise all of this in the introduction, simply to demonstrate, first of all, that if you want to understand Western political thought, you need to have a deep understanding of an appreciation for the Bible and the world of Hebraic thought. We'll get to that in a bit. We've talked about this on the pod before, and it's a crucial point. But it's also worth noting that, as in the case of the origins of Western religious toleration, the formative role of biblical political philosophy has been greatly obscured over the ages. And I think one of the great tasks of political philosophy in this generation, the coming generation, a strategy with enormous potential return for societal flourishing, is to reveal those biblical Hebraic roots and foundations and articulate how this can help revitalize politics for a new era. 
So in this episode, I'd like to start tackling this. And the way I'd like to go about it is by discussing one of the most transformational figures in the history of Western and particularly American political history, a thinker whose Hebraic context has actually been severely, if not entirely, underappreciated, the one, the only, John Locke. So to unpack all of this, I brought on the guy who literally wrote the book on the subject. He's a wonderful political philosopher, resident scholar at the Herzl Institute, and author of the fabulous John Locke's Political Philosophy in the Hebrew Bible for Cambridge University Press. He's Dr. Yechiel Leiter. Yechiel, thank you so much for being here. Well, Rabbi Lamb, thank you so much for inviting me and for that introduction. I'm, this is, it's good that it's a podcast and not a video cast because I'm blushing. <laughs> well, that's uh, I've I have often been told that I have a face for radio, so this is a perfect <laughs> uh, perfect medium for me. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Oh my God, I am so excited that you're here. I love the book, and and you've written this incredible book on John Locke and the Hebrew Bible. And to me, those things, right? John Locke, Hebrew Bible. At first, they sound like pizza and ice cream, right? Both awesome, but you'd never assume they'd go well together. So what's your origin story here? What led you to want to create that bridge between the study of one of the most influential political theorists in the history of Western liberalism on the one hand and a religious text like the Hebrew Bible on the other? How did you come to that? Well, I, I really want to answer that question and get into a discussion on the topic. But when I was listening to your introduction, I, I, I thought that I'd like to begin actually by sharing a, an anecdote with you. You know, you, you began with, uh, with the book of Exodus and the transformation from the Exodus of Egypt to the giving of the, uh, the Ten Commandments, the Torah, and, and, and then the, the series of laws and onto the priesthood. Uh, I'd like to backtrack just a little bit to the end of the book of Genesis and tell you and your listeners uh, a little bit of a story which I think sets the, the backdrop, sets the stage for everything that we'll discuss in terms of Locke and his biblical exegesis for political theory. Actually, uh, when you spoke about what I do, I guess I, I didn't send an updated uh, CV, but uh, actually three months ago, I, I took the helm at the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs uh, as the director. Oh, yeah. that breaking news. I love it. <laughs> well, uh, and actually the first, the very first week in the Jerusalem Center, I was invited to speak uh, in Addis Ababa, at a conference on peace and security in the Horn of Africa. And it was a fascinating experience. I was the only non-African in the room, actually, the only non-African uh, country invited to address the uh, gathering. And, and here I am sitting next to a representative on the panel from Djibouti, Ethiopia, South Sudan, and Sudan. It was really surreal. And everybody anticipated that I would speak about you know, it was on peace and security. So I would speak about tanks and planes and cyber security and, you know, the, the normal stuff that Israelis talk about. And instead, I chose to speak about food security and water security. And it was uh, out of the box and everybody was a little surprised. And uh, I made mention of the fact that here we are, uh, 21st century, and nearly a billion people go to sleep hungry every night when the solutions for all the problems that uh, uh, define food insecurity are to be found in a five-kilometer radius of Tel Aviv, and that we really have to bind together. My recommendation was that we take the financial resources of the Gulf, technological resources of Israel, the human resources of Africa, and come together to solve this problem of food insecurity. But I concluded my remarks by pointing to the fact that the father of us all, and there were both Christian and Muslim Africans in the room, the father of us all, here I am, a Jew from Israel, and you, a divided room of Muslims from Sudan and Christians from South Sudan and Ethiopia, which of course is divided, mostly the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. We had Kenyans and Ugandans and Somalilands and Djibouti. I said, you know, uh, here we have a, a, our great-grandfather, Abraham, is sent to the Promised Land. And the first thing he has to contend with is food insecurity. And his son, Isaac, contends with food insecurity and has to leave. And his grandson, Jacob, has to contend with food insecurity. And as a matter of fact, the longest story to be told in the Bible is the story of Jacob and his sons. And who puts an end, who actually saves the world 
from food insecurity, Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. And where did he save the world from food insecurity? On the African continent. Brilliant. So when we're talking about the relevance of the Bible for the 21st century, we couldn't really think of a better example. If you walk into the halls of the World Health Organization post-COVID, prior to COVID, the number one issue is food insecurity. And to think that 75 years after a Holocaust, the Jewish people in the state of Israel have produced the way to contend with the encroachment of the desert, for example, desertification, and the lack of clean water, the the lack of uh, sufficient water, the innovative technologies that have created the strongest strands of uh, seeds for the growth of uh, such staples as wheat. And to think that all of that takes place in our uh, innovative uh, incubators in Yerushalayim and in Tel Aviv and in the Galil and the Negev is really mind-boggling. It's, it's worth stopping for a moment and saying, here we are, the people of the Bible, bringing once again into modernity the solutions for human development. So now we can backtrack uh, and relate to, to your original question, if that's okay, about how I came to Locke. Locke Locke fascinated me because, uh, personally, I've always been kind of uh, one foot here and one foot there, as the expression goes, in the world of academia, in the world of thought, in the world of practical application, the world of, uh, uh, you know, I'm at a think tank now, and we often refer to the think tank as a do tank, because it's not enough to think. (laughs) You know, when I I was in government, uh, I always had two piles on my desk, the immediate and the important. When you're in government, you never get to the important. You're always going to the immediate because you have no time for the important. So the think tank, you can deal with the important. And uh, Locke was a very interesting character in that regard as well. He had his, uh, he straddled both the world of practical politics and the world of theory as well. And um, it's hard to think of anyone who influenced the American experience, the founding fathers, more than Locke. And when I started to really delve into the issue of um, the breakup of the Soviet Union, the victory of democracy. I wanted to to search for the roots of that victory. And uh, I reread all the greats of uh, political theory that uh, influenced uh, Western civilization. And uh, of course, I was impressed by the great writings of uh, Thomas Hobbes and James Harrington, as you mentioned, and international law, Hugo Grotius, and uh, the later later philosophers, of course, uh, separation of powers, Montesquieu, and so on. But when I got to Locke, I, I was I was fascinated. I said, "How is it that I didn't pay attention to the fact that in the two treaties of government, the New Testament is not quoted at all?" and the, quote, Old Testament, or what we would call the Hebrew Bible, is quoted so very many times. Um, I haven't read my book recently, but I think it's about 125 times between the two treaties. And almost to the exclusion of, of any other source, biblical or otherwise. Well, well yeah. Uh, yeah, certainly the, the New Testament is absent. And, you know, the, the, the first treaties is a response to a book by a philosopher by the name of, of Filmer, the Patriarcha, who uh, used the Bible to defend absolute government, absolutism. And um, he uses the Bible as well, but it's the Christian Bible, the New Testament and the Old Testament. Here Locke comes to respond to him and only uses the, the Hebrew Bible. So I had to stop and ask myself, you know, is something going on here? What, what does this mean? And, you know, there's been six, seven hundred books written on, on Locke, dissecting Locke. And I discovered that there were basically two, two and a half, really three schools of thought. And one school of thought is called the the, the Straussian, after Leo Strauss, the, the Straussian school, that says that uh, claims that Locke spoke uh, esoterically. He he was duplicitous. He didn't really mean what he was writing. He was afraid of uh, uh, being persecuted by uh, emissaries of Charles II and James II. So um, he didn't really mean when he used the Bible. It was just a rhetorical kind of, of usage. And really, he was an atheist. And that is the only reason why he remains relevant today, because we don't have religion and politics. We have a complete separation, right? We think so. But in any case, that's what the Strassian school 
claimed he's relevant only because he didn't mean the usage of the Bible. Then you have the Cambridge School, which says that he was a religious Christian, and therefore he's irrelevant. It's amazing just to see how these Cambridgers claim that Locke is no longer relevant, even though, you know, he's a he's a, a Lanzmann, but, he, but he's right. not relevant because he's religious. But, you know, the question that, you know, you have to pose to the Strassian school is, you know, doesn't it make more sense that somebody who wrote something means what they wrote than he was writing duplicitously? And moreover, we know that other writers of his time who are certainly aren't running afoul of any of the authorities that Strauss uh, assumes that his esoteric writers would have been concerned about, that they weren't quoting the Hebrew Bible at nearly the same frequency or ratio that Locke was. You do have Algernon Sidney, who, who was executed, but it certainly wasn't, as you say, Rabbi, not, not to the same extent as, as Locke. Right. Other than John Selden, who's going all in on the Hebrew Bible in the same way that Locke is, I, you point out in the book that there are a few non-biblical citations in both of the treatises, but they're pretty, like, tangential, um, or in some cases just responding to Filmer or whatever it is. Yes, yes, yes. They're both uh, minimal in quantity and in quality, uh, very tangential to the arguments, whereas his quotes from the, the, the Bible are very central to his claims, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. So we have this question to Stra the Strassian school, in terms of their interpretation of Locke, like, why do you say that he didn't mean what he wrote? You know, let's let's go on the assumption he did. This is not, you know, uh, the case of Maimonides or Spinoza. This is a, a where which made Strauss famous. The, the question to the to the Cambridge scholars, Cambridge school is, if he's a loyal Christian, a, a religious Christian, and that's why he's quoting the Hebrew Bible. Why is he not quoting the New Testament at all, as Filmer did? So there's a third school that, that developed. You know, they, they weren't happy with the Strassian school saying that he's relevant only because he's not religious. And they weren't happy with the Christian school that he was a religious Christian, but why isn't he quoting the Hebrew Bible? So they tried to create a, an amalgamation of the two ideas. He's relevant, yes, he's Christian, but they still don't answer the question. There's one, uh, one of the most important scholars uh, of Locke, uh, Jeremy Waldron from Columbia, he wrote perhaps the most compelling interpretation of Locke, and he, he has a full chapter in which he asks the question. Nobody else bothers to ask the question, you know. And he says, well, he goes through about 50 pages and then says, well, we've come through the entire circle and we haven't answered the question. I still don't understand why Locke did not use New Testament writing at all. What surprised me was, and I said, well, I've got to find the answer to this question. So I went back and read everything that Locke had written prior to the two treaties. And there's a sentence in the two tracts, which he wrote some 30 years before the two treaties, in which he clearly states that the New Testament does not offer a political treatise. And we cannot learn how to govern a populace, a society, through the New Treaties. It is a, through the New Testament, excuse me. It is a Bible for personal ethical behavior, but it is not a pattern a template to be used for governance. And um, I, I came to the conclusion after uh, quite a bit of research that Locke did see in the Hebrew Bible specifically a template for, uh, for society, for, for societal governance. And bolstering that position is the fact that, A, he was a student of John Milton who mediated John Selden's writings to Locke, and when Locke had to escape London to, uh, to, to Holland, the time he spent five years in, in Holland was spent with the Remonstrants, who were a group of uh, 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 Dutch uh, theologians and, and, and political activists who were very much in the spirit of the Hebrew Bible. They were, they were religious Christians, but they believed that they had to turn to the Hebrew Bible for uh, a political doctrine, to follow to, to build a society that was based on the Hebraic state. So turn to example for, to Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is not associated with any particular state. Now, little is it known that was patterned after the Dutch Republic. And the Dutch Republic was patterned uh, after Jerusalem, right? Because they said, Jerusalem was not divided amongst the tribes. In order for it to be the capital 
and have everybody relate to and identify with and feel wholesome with the capital of their federated uh, republic. So that's why uh, the, the Dutch followed Jerusalem and the American founding fathers followed the Dutch. By the way, it's very important. Uh, this is something that my colleague and, and good friend Yoram Chazoni uh, points out repeatedly. Says we, we very often focus on a, a, a strand of thought that runs from uh, you know, Germany to, to France. And we have Kantian philosophy and so on. And, and there's a whole different strand of philosophy that runs from Holland through London to the United States. And the, the Franco-Germanic strand is abiblical or almost anti-biblical, whereas the Dutch-England-American strand is very rooted in the Bible, specifically uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Good faith, fam! So, we're talking about the book of Exodus these days, and so obviously the Exodus from Egypt has been on my mind. And besides, anyone who knows me knows that my favorite holiday of the entire year is Passover, where you get to spend an entire week just combing through the Exodus narrative, its texts and its ideas over and over to your heart's content. And every year, I'm always on the hunt for new and fun educational or experiential tools to teach my kids about the story. And so that's why I want to talk to you about Seder Salt. Seder Salt's a pyramid-shaped flake sea salt from the Mediterranean Sea that serves as a really cool visual for teaching kids about the Exodus, certainly if you've got young kids like I do. So whether you're at a Passover Seder, like I'll be, or just learning about the story together at a family night or in Sunday school, it's just a ton of fun to use Seder Salt because at the very same time, you can create a delicious saltwater dip like you'd use at a Seder and create the visual of the Egyptian pyramids dissolving in the sea because they're pyramid shaped. So this then leads to questions and discussions that are at the heart of any study of the Hebrew Bible. And in my case, the absolute soul of the Passover Seder. Seder Salt is certified kosher for Passover. It's OUP and you can get your own by visiting www.sedersalt.com. That's www.sederr salt.com and while you're there put in code goodfaith10 that's g o o d f a i t h 10 for a 10% discount off your purchase and be sure to follow Seder Salt on Instagram for recipes, educational ideas and even Lego giveaways. Just awesome stuff. And now, back to the show. Okay, so anyone who studied Locke as a political thinker is familiar or has at least heard of his second treatise of government. You've referred to the, the two treatises, but the second one is, is famously the source for much of Thomas Jefferson's best-known work, for example. But less well-known is his first treatise of government. So why is it important to read the first treatise, and what is it about Locke's engagement with Hebrew scripture that helps explain his political theorizing in the first treatise? Oh boy, there's so much. There's so much to unpack here. The, the, the first thing is, you know, let's rock and roll. <laughs> let's rock and roll. You know, people are are very uh, selective often. You know, in in their reading, and um, if you go to the text objectively, you have to really see what's there. You know, what what is the what is the pasuk? What is the verse saying? Right before we go into <laughs> exegesis, what is the verse saying? And Locke clearly says. At the beginning of the first treatise, this is the first of two treatises, right? And the beginning of the second <laughs> treatise, he says, this is the second of the two treatises. And I was, Locke was very intent on having both his treatises read together. It's one book. He didn't print them separately. And the scholarship almost reads the first treatise off. It's, it's irrelevant, you know? You know, in Hebrew, the Hebrew translation, Locke has been translated into dozens of languages, but... Only the, the, the second treatise has been translated uh, uh, separately. <laughs> now, that's simply not what Locke intended. You know, I've had this discussion often with academics who are experts in Rambam, right? Maimonides. Maimonides. So, you know, you go into academia and there's only Guide to the Perplexed. And you go into the yeshiva world and there's only the Mishnah Torah. The code. But, you know, the code <laughs> of law. But, but you know, Rambam was Rambam. He was, he was one person and he wrote both texts. And if you really want to understand <laughs> the code of law, you have to also understand how he approached law. There's a philosophy of law and the philosophy of law exists in the Guide to the Perplexed. 
And and those who study the Guide to Perplex can't ignore the fact that he was a halachist. He he believed in you know Jewish Jewish law and a code of law uh, that was uh, very central to his uh, to his Weltanschauung, his to, to, to his his uh, understanding, to his uh, philosophy of, of Judaism. So first off, the first treatise has to be studied, has to be understood. And what I try to show in the book is that much of explaining ideas in the second treatise was based on his biblical exegesis in the first. So if, if you do read them together, it becomes much more logical in the second treatise to realize that the underpinnings were biblical. So, I mean, there, there are a number of, of cases, of instances, of uh, examples. Uh, certainly the idea of um, the, the notion of natural law. Uh, you know, there's there's quite a discussion about natural law as to whether or not it's, uh, you know, what, what's the basis of natural law? Uh, uh, Alan Dershowitz, certainly a, a, a great expert in, in legalities, uh, pretty much writes off the idea of natural law because it has no source, because everybody's logic is different, you know. So Locke does something very interesting. Locke uses the Bible to prove that there is something called natural law. Like Cain, you should have known that you don't kill your brother, right? The idea is, you know, when Abraham argues with God over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, is it possible that God should not perform in accordance with justice, right? Well, obviously there's a mishpat, there's a, there's a law, a moral code that God is obligated in. Right? And Locke uses, actually quotes the Bible to say that there's a natural law. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the, the idea of, of Cain and Abel is, is very central there. But he also goes one step further, and he says that logic, logic, that human logic, the ability to use reason, is also revelation. It's not only that he derives from biblical revelation, the idea of natural law, but he says that the logic, which is how humans use law, uh, use natural law, is also a form of revelation. So you really got it from both sides. Natural law is revelation, and the logic that leads one to understand natural law is also a form of revelation, because that's the power of reason is a gift from God, is a gift from the Creator. Without this idea, uh, you couldn't have revolution against the, 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 the usurpation of uh, natural law, without the rights of, of human beings. You couldn't have revolution against absolute rule of, of kings and uh, uh, government. There's something called in Locke what he, an appeal to heaven, right? There's an appeal to heaven. The appeal to heaven is appealed to a law which is above the, the, the law of government. In other words, you, you can, there are certain laws that government cannot implement, those, which, those laws which are immoral. I mean, you take the whole Nuremberg concept, right? Without the idea of a higher law, without a higher concept of a natural law, which Locke places in the biblical context, you, you, you would have you know, those who violated the most basic laws against humanity, the most basic crimes against humanity, they come and say, well, I was following the, the government laws. This is what, you know, what can I do? But there, Locke comes and says, no, an absolute king is, is antithetical to the law of God. And you cannot take the rights of man away. He even goes so far as to say, he takes on Aristotle. You know, Aristotle believed that there was such a thing as natural slavery, that there were people born into slavery. And, and Locke goes so far as to say that, no, 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 you don't have, the person doesn't have the right you don't even have the choice. Not only is Aristotle wrong insofar as people aren't born into slavery, you cannot choose slavery because you're not a complete owner of your own being. And in this respect, he differed from Hobbes and from Grotius and so forth. Oh, oh, absolutely. Hobbes and Grotius were, were, were uh, followed Aristotle. They believed that there was a, 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 a segment of the population that was fit for slavery, and they, they, they didn't oppose it at all. This idea of the, the common ownership with God goes beyond the, the physical human being. So, for example, the, the issue of tithing, of ownership. Now, you know, Locke is known in the, in the world of capitalism as being one of the founders of capitalism, this idea of, you know, how, how is private property, right, life, liberty, and happiness? Well, it originated with Locke, but it wasn't happiness. It was life, liberty, and 
and property. So L- Locke, you know, has this this wonderful argument in, in which he describes how property is created, where one is mixing one's labor, right? It's almost a definition of you know, with the, by the sweat of your brow shall you eat bread. And he really is applying that to everything. Property is made by taking the wood and, you know, sawing the wood down and creating the chair or creating the table. So, Right. I think the, the phrase is like, it's very evocative. You're mixing your labor into a substance. Exactly. It's very evocative. You're mixing your labor into a substance, and that's how you create private property. And yet, Locke, has one of the most, really the most beautiful passages in which he says, property never becomes your own to the extent that it ceases to be the property of God. There's always a link to whatever I own, to whatever I create, to whatever I do. It never leaves the realm of the creator. Okay? So it's a very humbling experience, very humbling human experience. It uh, inculcates a sense of modesty into the human being that he's never uh, uh, completely a the baalim, the owner of, of his of his property, because the ultimate creator, the ultimate owner, is always lurking behind the scenes and reminding you that I gave you the power to mix your hands, to mix your power, to mix the the sweat of your brow the, into the material substance and to make it. And I maintain that bond to everything that is in is in creation. So. He, he found that and he pointed to that in many respects uh, from the idea of, uh, of justifiable revolution to which, which he called an appeal to heaven. Was it, he called it an appeal to heaven. He quotes Jephthah, the story from the book of Judges, which baffles scholars of, of Locke. But when you put it into the biblical context, when you say that, look, this was a Hebraist who followed Selden, I mean, it's, it's, it's worth, I'm sure, that you had... Uh, uh, if you had Eric Nelson, he spoke uh, extensively about John Selden, who's a, just a, just a fascinating character. We actually had your uh, your Herzl Institute colleague Ophir Avery on to talk about his book on John Selden, so he was great. There's probably no greater scholar of Selden, you know. Uh, just to think about this fellow in 17th century England, where there are no Jews, right? Jews are expelled from England in 12 have been expelled in 12 1295, right? The 13th century expulsion. There, there is a there is a historian uh, David Katz who believes that there were always some Morano type Jews living in London, but but basically in public there are no Jews, and yet John Selden, a parliamentarian, a Protestant parliamentarian in the the, the House of Commons, is sent to jail by Charles, uh, Charles the First, and he's granted one request, and he and he requests the Talmud. Right, they, he's he's like you can order you get fourteen sheets of paper I think, and you get one book request. And his one book request <laughs> was was a Talmud, but you know, you know, Rabbi, that was the only nine volume Talmud ever printed. Yeah, uh, right in the West, the Westminster That's edition. Correct. It was nine <laughs> volumes. Most of the most of the Talmud printed at the time were twelve volumes, and he had the nine volume, and that's what he studied for three years in the Tower in London under under arrest. I mean, this is this is just a just a fascinating uh, historical uh, truth. And um, I when I tell that story, can I can I can I fly away just for another moment? Because let's do it. Let's do it. You know, we, we again we talk about the Bible and its influence on Western civilization. How many of your listeners? How many people anywhere in the world know that if it wasn't for the Bible, there would be no Church of England? If it wasn't for the specifically <laughs> for the Hebrew Bible over Henry the Eighth's divorce proceedings. This this is just absolutely mind boggling, and you know when I when I talk about it, you know, with students often, it's just they 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 find it unfathomable, you know. <laughs> here, here we go, Henry VIII wants to marry Catherine of Aragon, right now. Now, who is Catherine? Catherine is the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella. This is the historical as the world turns. I mean, this this is you know, in, at that period of time, um, marriages have very little to do with family. They have to do with international relations, right? Yes, yes, so, yes. So Henry VIII wants to marry uh, Catherine of Aragon, who was had been married to his brother. Okay, she had been married to his brother. Now, now this becomes an issue, but 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 it's not just just any Catherine. She's the daughter of Ferdinand Isabella, who expelled the most erudite and accomplished Jewish community anywhere in the world at the time, the Spanish Jewish community. Right, the Spanish Inquisition. They send Jews all over the world. 
which, by the way, is what enabled Hebraism to develop. Because when Luther, what is it, uh, 15 years after the Spanish Inquisition, embarks on the Protestant Reformation, he tells everybody, don't listen anymore to the catechisms of the Catholic Church. Go out and study the Bible in the vernacular. Go study the Bible yourselves. Put a Bible in every house and study Hebrew. That's why you see 100 years later, you've got biblical scholars in Oxford teaching in Hebrew, right? Scholars of Hebrew and Aramaic, by the way, right? So 15 years after the, the Spanish Inquisition, Henry VIII, a little bit longer, about 18 years, I believe, he wants to marry, his, his brother dies, right? And he wants to marry his sister-in-law. Now, we know the verse in Leviticus, which forbids the, the union between uh, a brother and sister-in-law, brother-in-law, sister-in-law. And we also know that there's a verse in Deuteronomy that under certain circumstances obligates the marriage of a sister-in-law to a, a brother who died, the, 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 the Yibum uh, process, right? Right, leveret, leveret marriage. So there's a huge dilemma. You know, remember that the Torah Shabbat Peh, the oral law, doesn't exist uh, in, in the Christian world. You just have the, the, the biblical text. So there's a dilemma. What to do? Do we follow Leviticus or do we follow Deuteronomy? Right, and, and, and for context, Henry's brother, who had been married to Catherine, they had died before he had died before they had any children. So it was the the set of circumstances that Deuteronomy prescribes for when you know if a, a person dies childless, the brother of the deceased can marry uh, the deceased's wife, and that's sort of the verse in Deuteronomy that's called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage, exactly. So. Again, there is no, there's no Church of England, right? So Henry appeals to Clement VII, the Pope in Rome, for a dispensation. And after a lot of haggling, he's granted dispensation. There's a ruling that will follow Deuteronomy and not Leviticus, right? Now, a little bit of time goes by, and Catherine doesn't produce a son. Whoops. <laughs> so Henry VIII wants a divorce. So he appeals to, to, to the Pope, and he says, I want a divorce. And he says, I just grant you a, a dispensation, right, for marriage. There's no, you can't divorce. You know, there's, there's, there's no divorce in the Catholic Church. How is he going to divorce her? The basis for divorce would have to be that it was a mistake to have followed Deuteronomy and that the dispensation was in error. And we'd go back and see, you know, in, in halacha, Jewish law, we call it the mafreya, right? It would be a retroactive, retroactively, we'd annul the marriage. You couldn't divorce, but you can annul the marriage. So th this is what, ha what ensued here is absolutely amazing from every standpoint. Henry sends an emissary. Clement, Clement refuses. Clement refuses. He says, look, you're not going to make a fool out of me. I gave you the dispensation. We followed Deuteronomy. How can you do this? So... Henry sends a emissary to Rome, and he says, "Look, go to the Jews. The Jews will interpret what the what really is the halacha." Right? Henry the Ace is concerned about about the halacha. <laughs> what does the Bible really say? What are they, What do the Jews do? Do they follow Deuteronomy? Do they follow Leviticus? So he, he comes to the Jewish community in Rome, and you know, look, the Jews are living in exile. They're completely subservient to the the, the authority of the church. They're not about to argue with the Pope. So they say, listen, there are others. There's another Jewish community in northern Italy. <laughs> Go ask them. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to argue. We're going we're gonna to back up the Pope. Now, the emissary goes, I believe it was to Modena, a city in northern Italy, and they rule that the marriage should be annulled and that Henry could uh, divorce Catherine and marry Anne and Boleyn. Right to marry the, the woman he wanted to marry. Now you have two Jewish communities. The Jews are in exile. They've been in exile for 15 years. And they're arguing about biblical texts about the king of England where there are no Jews. You, you can't make this stuff up, right? You just can't make it up. But the Bible here is, is central to discussions going on between major Jewish communities, the Pope sitting in Rome, and the king of England. And you tell me that the Bible is not relevant, right? I mean, come on. Oh, no, it's it's absolutely remarkable what is happening during this period. And what's so fascinating, and, and you chronicle this in the book, is that Locke 
is far from like just adorning his book with biblical quotations simply for aesthetic purposes. Locke is actually taking these texts and making conceptually significant moves with them, right? So you gave an example uh, earlier about the, you know, the notion of all property belonging uh, belonging ultimately to God. And that's what causes Locke to make this unusual move of saying that, well, the right to property actually is, is limited. You cannot use your right to property to harm others. That's sort of a, a conceptually significant move that Locke makes. And it's rooted ultimately, as, as you point out in the book, in his understanding of the acquisition of property is modeled on God's acquisition of creation in the sense that creation is intended to benefit all humans equally that all human. And this is sort of his argument in the first treatise that, you know, Adam is not a king. Adam is actually a type of, uh, you know, and, and therefore if he were a king, that would sort of legitimize the divine right of Kings moving forward, which is Filmer's argument. Locke says, no, Adam is a type of every single human. Every single human being has the rights and prerogatives of Adam. So my, my next question for you is, how does Locke's kind of theological appreciation of the Bible's account of creation play out in his work, right? Locke is interested in the story of Cain and Abel. He's interested in the divine image. He's interested in what happens after the flood. How does Locke kind of use these sorts of stories to make arguments in his work? Yeah, well, in many respects, I think he was uh, a bit prophetic because the Enlightenment the age of reason. And uh, the Enlightenment came and said, in many respects, I mean, there's there's a difference between the, the English Enlightenment, the French Enlightenment, and the Spanish Enlightenment, but the Enlightenment as a whole came to say, reason has to replace revelation. You know, we don't we don't believe, it. if you can't prove it, you know, it's, it's, if it's, it's not scientific. And reason has to take the place of, of revelation, human reason. And Locke was a big advocate of reason, but he was called it, you know, right reason or good reason, but he was very skeptical. And he said that reason could deteriorate into uh, the worst kind of reasoning. And uh, he actually quotes Psalms uh, regarding the dangers of reason alone when it's not mitigated by revelation. So if you don't begin with creation at really the, the basis, the fundamental of everything, then reason uh, uh, deteriorates into tyranny. Uh, once you have creation always there, then there are limits. There's limits of power. There's limits of property. The idea of obligation. Always, problem with reason very often is well, what obligates you, right? I, I. But if I choose, I can choose to be reasonable, and I can choose to be unreasonable, right? But there's nothing in in natural law that obligates you unless the source of natural law is revelation. And that's something that is just completely ignored by Locke scholars. I mean, he's, he's turned he's turned into they kind of take the Kantian world, you know, continental philosophy, uh, which came later and was far more removed from the biblicism of the 17th century. And they transport it back to the 17th century and turn Locke into a continental philosopher that re rejected the Bible and reason and so on. And it's just, it's terribly unfair. And I think that has a lot to do with misunderstanding of the American founding. Uh, I mean, if we take a look at what's going on today with the, with the spread of uh, this unbridled wokeism, the, the erasure of what we know as, as American history, anybody who reads Madison cannot be unimpressed with his, you know, uh, a theoretical, emotional, intellectual wrangling with real hardcore issues that ultimately led to Lincoln and the emancipation and, and the history of the United States. This was a process, you know. I'm sometimes, I do, do a lot with Africa now, and I'm some, somewhat uh, shocked, not, I mean, it, I'm, I'm shocked each time it happens, you know, that, that uh, good Good wishers from the West come and say, you know, we want African countries to immediately adopt what we now understand as liberal, moral, Western ideals when they didn't have the same experience as the Western countries. It wasn't instant soup. 
the, the progressive ideas that exist in the West today went through a process. It was a difficult process. And, and processes are necessary in history. That's what history is about, his processes. You know, it's just a magnification of the individual. The individual doesn't become something undernight, overnight. The individual goes through a process. It's an aging process, it's a maturing process. And, and it is the same with societies, it's certainly the same with societies. If the individual takes time, the society takes time. And when you think about how far, you know, uh, Europe has come, the United States has come, the Western ideals have come, you can't expect that, you know, an, an African country could adopt the very same policies, the very same ideals, the very same social uh, structure that a country that's undergone, that has had a Madison, Jefferson, uh, Adams, Lincoln, and, and Wilson, and Roosevelt, uh, uh, and so on. You, you just, just can't go through. Uh, uh, process may take a shorter amount of time. But, you know, uh, just remember what happened in Egypt when everybody said democracy, 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 and democracy elected every anti-democratic ideal possible out of the Muslim Brotherhood. So, again, the idea, you know, we come back to, to Genesis. You started with Exodus. We're nearing conclusion. You know, the, the rabbis saw Exodus really as the same, the, the continuation of Genesis. It's actually one book. Uh, because again, you see, you see a process. The, the Bible doesn't begin with the choosing of, of Abraham and his seed and, and the, the giving of the Torah. I mean, if, if the, if the Bible is, is, is everything. So why did it begin with the, with the, with the, with the giving of the Torah? You know, here we are, take this, start implementing it. No, it was a process. Life is a process. History is a process. And we have to uh, you know, appreciate that. And as long as we remember that it begins, that that process, every process begins with creation. There's a God in heaven uh, that has never left us, that has never left history. There's a God of history. I think that uh, uh, we can do a lot better in, in modern society if, if uh, we remember that. Uh, and it's important to remember, getting back to Locke for a moment, that you know, he, he was one of the harbingers of modernity. Initially, modernity did not give up on God. On the contrary, they turned to the Bible. They turned to the divine word. They turned to what the, the source, the ultimate source was in order to arbitrate. I mean, look, there was a crisis now, right? You always had the church at the helm, right? There was no separation between church and, and, and political power. And all of a sudden, it was torn apart. It was torn asunder. You know, the, 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 the church is not at the helm. So what do we base our government on? And the early modernists who believed in reason, absolutely, they believed in human potential, but they also believed that it had to be harnessed by the Bible. They turned to the Bible and said, well, what are the instructions there? How did God instruct his, his, his chosen in terms of creation of their own uh, republic? And uh, what was lost then was the distancing from you know, this radical skepticism the uh, drawing everything back to Descartes' famous question about "I think, therefore I am." I remember, I remember Rav Soloveitchik, saint of memory, once uh, once spoke about one of the great American Jewish theologians of the twentieth century. He said, "No, no, no, Descartes had it wrong. It's not I think, therefore I am. I am, therefore I think." I mean, stop for a moment and think about that. Something so so radical. Something so illogical. What do you mean? How do I know I exist? I mean, what kind of question is that? Abraham's question. And I would say, you know, for, for, for your Christian listeners, Jesus's uh, dilemmas didn't begin with, how do I know I exist? The question is, why do I exist? Now that I exist, what do I do? Abraham's question was, how could all of this exist and God be a, an idol? There must be a leader to the city, right? That there must be somebody who created all of this around me. That's a question. The the idea of I, I I don't know if I exist sitting by the fireplace. It's very romantic, Descartes, but it's obnoxious, and and it certainly should not be the arbiter of the future. Rather, one of his contemporaries, Milton, Locke, Selden should have been the arbiters, and they, they shouldn't have been left, quite frankly. I don't think we'd find ourselves today in this era of postmodernism, of radical skepticism, of, uh, uh, of radical uh, subjectivism, uh, had it not been for, for the departure 
from the Bible, from the departure from reflection back uh, to the biblical concept of creation and uh, God's presence in our world. Amen. That was absolutely unbelievable, absolute fire. And Dr. Leiter, thank you so much for being here. This was absolutely fantastic. Well, Rabbi Lamb, may you go from strength to strength with this wonderful podcast and your audience grow. Uh, it's a great discussion and perhaps we'll continue. We'll continue it sometime. Amen. I cannot wait. All the best. question that's on all of our minds. I know you feel it too. I mean, maybe not every hour or every day, but you think about it. Is our society just doomed to silly purposelessness forever? Is our future just increasingly dumb, pointless infighting? Is revival, revitalization even possible anymore? That's why I think it's so important to study with political philosophers like Yechiel, who can show us that the answers to our questions are actually right here at home. John Locke's as American as apple pie, as foundational to Western thought as anyone. And if we just put in the effort to read him on his own terms, if we give our full attention to the Hebraic principles and literature that guided Locke's own thought, then we have all the ingredients of building a virtuous society in the generation to come. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an absolute blast. And while you're here, please go ahead and be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or anywhere else you get podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Land making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul